Robotics has changed modern agriculture. Autonomous systems are powering the tractors, cotton pickers, and corn cutters that yield plants at industrial scale. John Deere is a company that has been making farm equipment for 183 years. Over that period, the planting and harvesting process has become increasingly mechanized, and John Deere has been at the forefront. Over the last few decades, software has played an increasingly important role at John Deere. Today, there is software inside the vehicles, the tractors, the cotton-picking machines, and these vehicles can operate autonomously. They collect large amounts of data, and they're supported by a large system of cloud services. The teams within John Deere who create the software have an elaborate testing workflow that allows them to deploy the software to the vehicles and drive them in the field. Ryan Bergman is a software engineer at John Deere, and he joins the show to talk about the software engineering, management, and DevOps practices within the company. Ryan Bergman, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi, well, great to be here. You work at John Deere, and we're going to discuss a lot about software and hardware and agriculture. I'd like to just start by getting your description for the software and the hardware that runs modern agriculture. Give me an overview of the technology. Sure. So there's on a large piece of agricultural equipment and the kind of stuff I work on, we're talking about, you know, really big combines, tractors with planters, uh, sprayers. It's, it's kind of amazing. It's, it's really a series of a whole bunch of little computers and a lot of different things. You could think of like the tractor is a, is a, bunch of microservices, right? And all of the different pieces of hardware often have their own embedded controllers, like even down to individual spray nozzles on a sprayer. And they all have to, you know, they work together, they communicate together and make up a, a, a total system. The, the sheer number of computer systems and moving parts on these things is, is pretty amazing. And what are some examples of devices that John Deere builds? So I'll kind of lay out where I'm coming from with, with this. So I work for John Deere Intelligent Solutions Group. So we are a kind of a division or business unit of John Deere that's a little bit independent from, say, corporate or from um, any of the particular factories. So generally, our what we call like a platform is a particular kind of equipment. So Harvest Works um, makes combines, and they kind of oversee their own thing as far as the combine goes. Um, you know, the tractors are made in Waterloo and they have their own kind of thing. What Intelligent Solutions Group does is we build a lot of the more advanced computer systems that kind of help tie all of these things together. So we make the display that goes on the tractor or any of the, the equipment. So there's generally an embedded display. There's also a what we call an MTG, which is basically a glorified, ruggedized cell phone. So all of the large equipment comes pre-built with a, um, a telematics device like that. We oversee the, the satellite receivers because all of the equipment is GPS-driven. And a lot of times the equipment will have more than one satellite receiver. And then we also have a large network of base stations and farmers can have their own base stations. And so we, we see oversee that too. And so all of that is... Generally, that, those parts of it are like embedded C++ kinds of applications. And those will collect all of the data. You know, they're used for configuring the equipment. 
And, and then we take all of that data, and through that telematics device, we suck all of that data up into the cloud, and we process it. And a lot of the stuff that I personally work on is all of that data that's, that's up in the cloud, and then the farmers can use to get reports and maps about their different kinds of operations. They can share that data with, say, an agronomist they're working with, and the agronomist can be able to look at that data uh, make prescriptions for um, spraying or fertilizing, and they can send that back and it automatically goes back onto the equipment, and then the equipment can automatically configure itself for those kind of prescriptions. So say with like a spraying operation, the agronomist might say, hey, you need, let's do this amount of chemical in this part of the field and this amount of chemical in this other part of the field. That goes onto the sprayer. The sprayer then knows, I need to spray exactly this amount of chemical in this piece of land and this amount in this piece of land. And you can drive the sprayer and figure eights across the field if you want. It's only ever going to apply exactly what it needs to apply. And that way we, we um, can severely reduce the amount of chemical use that's applied because, you know, farmers don't want to overpay. Consumers don't want their food oversprayed. And that's kind of like the whole circle. And then once you get to harvest, we take that data, we bring that up into the cloud, and then we can look at that data that they're, um, they're planting and they're spraying and they're harvest, and we can see how those different inputs impacted the you know, bushels per acre that they got in a particular field, in a particular area of a particular field. But the data as far as the yields, the crop yields at the end, that's data that the somebody has to put in manually at the end, right? Because that's not like something that is necessarily going to be gathered by the farming equipment. Oh, yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. I mean, it's at the end of the day, you're going to get paid for what goes into the elevator, right? When you, when you go and you weigh it at the elevator. But what we know about the, say, corn or soybeans or wheat or whatever it is, the combine can calculate exactly pretty, pretty, really close to what you actually have. And we know what they're going to have before they even get to the elevator. And we even can calculate our sensors that are in those combines and they're looking at the grain as it's going through the chute. And we can also, and we can use that data and we can calculate the moisture. And so we even know like, you know, when you get to a, an elevator, you're going to get paid for not only the grain, but also as a factor of that is how much, how much moisture is in it. Because if the elevator has to dry it, then, you know, there's charges for that because that takes propane gas to, or, or some other source to dry the grain. So we know the moisture content. We know about how much grain you've, you've got. We could tell you what you're going to get at the elevator before you get there. Amazing. And so I'm imagining these different kinds of machines that drive around the fields. You've got combines and cotton pickers and all these different gigantic machines that John Deere builds. In each of these things, there is some data that gets gathered. There's some calculations that take place locally on these big pieces of machinery. And then there's some shuttling of data to the cloud. Is the data gathering and the data sending to the cloud, is that heavily separated? Like, Or can you just stream data to the cloud? Do you have a consistent, reliable network connection to be able to send data to the cloud? Well, the answer to that is it, it depends. Ideally, we, do, we will stream it. 
and that's kind of our default behavior is to stream. And we, we actually stream kind of in, in 30 second chunks. You don't necessarily need like a constant stream. And we're sampling that data. So all of this, the, the planting data and the harvesting data gets, you know, we're not transmitting, say, the GPS coordinates of every single seed we plant, although we could do that. That would just be way too much data, right? And it's not terribly useful. So we do a sampling of between one and five hertz on all of that data. And it gets kind of a little batched up and then send in. And as long as we have a connection where we can do that. And that's not always the case. I can drive, you know, I'm, I live in Des Moines, Iowa. I can drive about 30 miles from Des Moines and get you to a place where there's no cell coverage. And that's despite the fact that, you know, <laughs> you, you go to AT&T or Verizon or whatever, and you look at their map and it looks like, oh, we cover all of America, right? And there's only like one or two little pockets of, of nothing. And that's not quite right. We, there's lots of rural America that has really poor coverage or you, or you do get there and it's only like the weakest of edge. It's pretty bad. So we generally design all the telematics stuff so that it doesn't require a real solid connection. Like we'll transmit over two 10 cans with some string if we could. And if we can't get a connection, it'll just kind of bundle it up and wait until the equipment gets to a place where it does have a better connection and then it can send it in. Still, even there, you get to, especially out west, some rural areas where it's just not going to happen at all. And if that happens, the farmer can plug a USB stick into the tractor. We'll pop all of the data off onto that. He could take it back to his computer at home and, and plug it in, and we'll upload it from a, from a desktop computer or from their cell phone. So it's not like an overwhelming amount of data such that the connectivity intermittent connectivity across different customers is going to get bottlenecked basically while you're not connected to the internet and you know you would have to downsample or have to lose data or have to do roll-ups or something it's just not not so much data that that happens no not really i I don't say we do a pretty good job the format that we send it in is pretty compressed it's nowhere near like watching 4k on netflix we're not at that level, like once we, as far as the transmitting of it goes, now once we expand it, that data gets pretty big. And we've got, I think last time I checked, like 25 petabytes of total agronomic data, which is not tiny. I still don't know if I would call it big data though. I think we're still only a moderately sized pond. Right, like in the scheme of things. <laughs> right, right, compared to what other some other people are dealing with. Yeah. So what can you expect out of the equipment operators in terms of technical expertise? Do, do they need to have significant understanding of anything related to software engineering? Well, you know, no. And there, there's a real shortage of farm labor in rural America, you know, they don't, there's, it's, which is part of the reason why John Deere and other people in agriculture have been working more and more towards autonomous vehicles and, and automating all of this is that there's just not a lot of people out there to do this labor and the expertise of the people who are there, no, we can't count on them having any kind of computer science degree. Our mantra is someone should be able to just jump in the cab turn the key and go. And the equipment's going to figure out 
everything that it needs to do. Now, there's probably going to be someone who's knows a lot about, um, not necessarily computers, I don't even know about that, but just of how to you know, configure some of this equipment, because it is complicated. And particularly if you're configuring it to be able to do the self-driving operations, you know, you got to get all of the, um, everything kind of configured the right way with the satellite receivers. And a lot of people rely on their dealers to help them do that. And we do a lot to, to help enable those dealers and other service providers to be able to, to help the farmers in, in doing that, whether it's being able to send alerts about oil pressure to the dealers or, or, or other things so that they can let a farmer know that he's going to have a pro- problem with a piece of equipment and they should get it fixed earlier. Or if it's like I was describing before with the agronomists and them being able to do those advanced agronomic operations and be able to configure the sprayers for um, what they need to do. You have been with the company for more than eight years, and the period of the last eight years, I would say, is this idea of quote-unquote digital transformation has really built a lot of steam. Now, there's a lot of companies that have been digitally transforming for a longer period than eight years, but Certainly over the last eight years, the cloud has really caught on as a software development paradigm. And so you've seen engineering, I'm sure, change at a pretty rapid pace because the cloud has been such a transformative set of technologies, as well as like open source. There's been so much happening in open source over the last eight years. How has engineering within John Deere changed over that eight-year period that you've been with the company? Right. Well, it kind of, it goes back, Further than that, from when I joined about a little over eight years ago, you know, ISG started, I think, around 2000. And really, it started off with the, with the satellite. That's the intelligent, um, intelligent Systems Group. Inte- yeah, the Intelligent Solutions Group, yeah. So that start, it really started around 2000 with, um, with the, the, the satellite navigation and, and the automatic steering. And the original, like, first version of those things, we literally, like mechanically turn the steering wheel right (laughs) you could retrofit it to like older pieces of equipment too which is pretty fun when i joined john deere isg was kind of undergoing a change at that time where they were kind of moving to more agile and xp methodologies i worked at another place in town that was kind of known around town for that we did a lot of that kind of stuff um we practice pair programming and we you know did all TDD and the, and that company was bought by another company and it kind of collapsed at that point like all the engineers quit and i think about 15 of us wound up at John Deere in one capacity or another and really a lot of things changed around that time and if you you know were to come you know and see we just moved into a new building which is which is pretty cool but you know it doesn't look a lot different than you know, a lot of the shops you see in, in Silicon Valley or elsewhere, and we still practice a lot, of, a lot of those practices, right? So we're doing pair programming, we're doing test-driven development, we do a lot of, 
of testing at a lot of different layers. And it's even really, it's, it's so much more important with the kind of stuff that we're doing because it's a lot harder to, you know, get an update if there's a bug that happens to impact, you know, displays or something on the equipment. That's a lot more expensive to fix than just something that's in a web app, right? And also taking into account that our equipment, you know, it's it's big, it's dangerous, you know, it it could hurt you. And we have to take those kind of considerations into into account and make sure everything's pretty solid before it goes out and gets in the hands of customers. The workflow is, of course, much more complicated than a web app. You know, if I'm building uh, a simple web app for uh, hosting a podcast, for example, I can do all of the testing that I need to do on my laptop, basically, or some combination of the laptop and remote cloud resources. But you are testing software that needs to be deployed to a tractor or software that needs to be on the cloud but supporting a tractor in the field. So I imagine you can do some of the testing that you need to do with simulation. I'm sure there are some kinds of your systems that are isolated enough that you don't really necessarily have to do lots of uh, unit testing all the time in a, in a hardware, in a real-world capacity. But I do imagine the overall workflow needs to account for the kinds of integration and real-world software-hardware interface challenges that are potentially going to occur once that software is out in the real world. Tell me more about the testing and development pipeline and how you minimize the amount of errors that are going to make it out into the real world. Sure. Yeah. So we have kind of all range of different kinds of applications. So we do have applications that are really just purely a web application and really only deal with state and things that are, you know, within our direct control and could be tested in a normal way, you know, with normal developer TDD kind of kind of environments. A lot of the stuff in my area kind of falls into that. You know, we do mobile app development. It's kind of similar. You know, you can mock out API requests. And as far as the stuff that goes on the equipment, that's where it gets a lot more complicated. So when I first came to Deer, the first project that I worked on is called Remote Display Access. So this allows anyone from a computer anywhere to be able to remote into the display. So it's basically doing, you know, good old VNC technology that's been around since like the 80s. But we're doing it to a tractor over a cellular connection that might be out in the middle of nowhere. And that allows, that's really valuable for like, uh, you know, especially the dealers and the other people who are helping the farmer configure their equipment. And they can, because they can, you know, if they have to do a service call and drive a truck out, sometimes, you know, it could be in like West Texas, it could be an hour and a half, two hour drive before um, some tech from the dealership gets to the farmer. And if they can just VNC into the display, then they could say, oh, yeah, I'll just click here, click here, change that to a two. Now you're good. So, that's like the whole thing, right? That, that impacts um, the equipment, it impacts the web, and that is, it's really difficult to test kind of all the way end to end really well, and at least, at least it's not fast, right? But we m mitigate that in a couple of different ways. One, we have kind of 
small-scale equipment simulators, which we can plug into displays. So you kind of, if you walk around our office, you'll see people, they'll have a display and they'll have a steering wheel just like strapped onto the side of it. And you can do a little bit of simulation there, or at least you can interact with the display for most of the things. When we were talking about simulating things like sensor income sensors coming in or we want to do more advanced stuff with the entire cab we have entire simulators where we basically have in our we have a lab and we have um, the cabs of the equipment because the cabs are fairly interchangeable it's basically the same cab that goes or the same command center if you will that goes on a combine that goes on a tractor that goes on a sprayer And so we have these, and then they're hooked up to what are essentially look like gigantic Nintendo Entertainment System cartridges that are about, like, I don't know, they're bigger, they're like the size of a dresser, right? And they contain within them all of the electronic equipment for that particular piece of equipment. So for Combine, for example, they would have all the sensors and and electronic equipment. And um, they're not as wide as a dresser, but they're pretty thin. They look like a cartridge. And then we have a like a bus that kind of travels below them. So rather than you taking the cartridge and then plugging it into it, the plug kind of moves around the bottom and you decide which one you want to hook it up to. And it hooks up to that. And so that allows a lot more advanced simulations. And we'll run like on the display builds, you know, we'll often run it through a whole host of different automated tests with the actual hardware. And then when our ultimate thing is we, we have an entire test farm. It's about, I don't know, 15, 20 miles out from our office. And it's it's pretty nice because, you know, if, if you happen to be working on something that impacts the tractor, and it's a really nice day in the spring or the fall or something like that, you could be like, oh, I think I need to test that out at the, out at the farm. And um, <laughs> we have all the equipment. We have a cotton picker there. It's the only place you'll see a cotton picker driving around to Iowa. And you can go out there and, and we can we can run... Um, the builds on actual equipment. It's a pretty nice facility. That's cool. Quick check on autonomy. So the idea of a self-driving tractor or self-driving cotton picker, so is that that's a reality today or, or to, to yeah. what extent yeah, we've been doing, is... We've been doing it for years. Yeah, it'll drive up and down the you know originally the first version was it was that it would just it would stay on an exact line and so you know you can imagine with like rows of corn it could align itself right up with the with those rows that it knew it planted so we knew we planted these corns these corn rows these gps coordinates and so we have a line there and the equipment can align itself up with that row and it can you know drive down and the first version of it you had to you know, I had to turn it around, but now we've got to the point where essentially the equipment could just go into a field and drive back and forth and, and do everything itself. We do require that a human being still sit in it. Um, it is dangerous equipment, and we need that human override in case something were to happen. We don't want a combine like going off and hurting someone or, or livestock or anything like that. So, but the equipment is, is essentially driving itself at that point. And we're getting more and more advanced with that as we go. The equipment also has the ability to communicate with other pieces of equipment in the field. So say you have a grain a tractor come in with a grain cart to offload a combine. The, um, the tractor with the grain cart communicates with the combine. The two pieces of equipment figure out 
exactly how that tractor is going to come up to the side of the combine. The combine can offload its grain and automatically figure out how to fill up that bin. Um, this is a really stressful thing if you're two human beings trying to do this, right? Try to drive a really, really big piece of equipment and have a chute off to the side offloading grain and trying not to hit each other is can be really really stressful and so we've got it so that the equipment basically all does all that part itself and they don't have to worry about that and then once the grain cart is filled up the tractor kind of pulls off to a point where the human can safely take back over the the driving of that equipment and it takes it off to wherever it needs to take it a silo or a semi truck or something like that and when you have two machines communicating with each other, are they routing their traffic through the cloud or are, can they talk over Bluetooth or something? They're talking to each other over, I believe it's a shortwave radio. Shortwave radio. Okay, that would make more sense. Let's talk a little bit more about the the software infrastructure side of things. So the applications that are running on the tractors themselves, are those mostly C++ or do you have a, a, a wide variety of application types that are actually running inside the tractors? Uh, it's almost entirely C++, yeah. Especially as you get, or just C, right? So if, if we're talking about like an embedded controller on a transmission or something like that, that's most likely probably just C, maybe it's C++. It's certainly natively built. The displays are all are, are all C++. We have looked into, you know, augmenting that with not everything necessarily like on the display would need to be C++. Um, it is a real-time operating system. We really need that like when you click this button that this physical thing happens. So we need that aspect to it. And so there's performance implications. And, um, and a lot of those, the people we have that are really experienced with this are experienced C++ developers. So it's kind of a natural language. And C++ honestly isn't as bad as it used to be if you're using like C++ 11, I think is the newer version. We have looked at starting to do some more stuff with, with like Rust or Go. Um, and some, yeah. there's no reason why a lot of the applications on the display couldn't be written in something like Python or something like that. So not everything on there is, you know, needs real-time critical applications yeah. you know there's like a radio the, the radio could probably be in whatever right it's just you also don't you don't want too many run times and, and dependencies there sure but i think rust is really the most interesting one um, of the the newer languages um and I, I know we have several different groups um, looking very closely at rust because of the memory safety or what what's the what makes it attractive to you yeah, I mean, what's attracted to me is, yeah, the memory safety, the fact that it's just a little bit more modern, and I just find it a, a fascinating language in general, as far as I don't do a lot of that embedded programming myself, but if if I ever get over into that space more, I would definitely want to look at that. Go would be fine, too, but, you know, it's not as, as hip and new as Rust is, so. You know, I wonder with, with the C++ stuff, I wonder if this is going to be like what, what we have with like COBOL and Fortran, where there's now a huge shortage of COBOL and Fortran developers. Like C++, isn't that 
like the the really good C plus plus developers, they're all aging out. Like <laughs> none of, I don't think anybody like millennials are not learning C plus plus. No, it's it's hard. And what's interesting though is that I think a lot of our C, uh, our developers that are on the display, there's quite a few that are just mechanical engineers, right? They didn't go into necessarily computer science. They went into to become engineers, agricultural engineers, you know, going to like Iowa State or um, or University of Illinois at Champaign. We have a kind of a lab there, you know, with the intention of, of, of doing, you know, real physical engineering. Well, anymore, you can't do real physical engineering without software. And so we tend to like get quite a few of our, um, if, you, if you walk through our embedded group, there is a lot of younger developers. There's people in their 20s and 30s there it's not it's not a bunch of of older folks although we have older folks too but generally i think yeah we, we have a, a bit of a problem recruiting that and we're always looking looking for people but um you know we'll train you too and we'll uh it's not c plus plus isn't as bad as people think it is it's not and it's not as bad as COBOL, I don't think, though I've never done COBOL. So um, <laughs> I'm mostly from like the Java C sharp generation. Yeah. I feel like we have a hard time getting people yeah. to do Java. <laughs> you know, I'm from, I mean, that's, that's the, the thing that I learned the most. That's, I, I took the most college classes in Java and I really got used to it and got acclimated to that level, the level of safety and abstraction. And I have really have no desire to program in Java. I don't have really much desire to program in any language, but, but that's why I became a podcaster. But C++, I, I do remember being pretty tough when I was working with it, but I'm sure it's just it's just a matter of practice. So as far as the server infrastructure, so you're handling all the data. Like you're handling all the data, you're handling all the backend server infrastructure, you're handling databases, queuing systems. I mean, all of this stuff is abstracted away from the farmer and the farming team, the, the agriculture team, because again, like you said, these are not like computer science users. They're technical in a certain sense, because the agriculture, like modern agriculture is a very technical business, but it's not technical in the sense that you're going to be like writing your, you're not going to go home and want to export your data and write scripts and, or maybe some more sophisticated agriculture people are, but the average, you know, agriculture person, they just want a nice UI like, you know, just a, a simple UI, you know, nothing more complicated than like the Facebook interface or the, you know, I don't know, QuickBooks interface, something like that. And so you're really handling all of the back end data infrastructure. You're ingesting all of this data and then you're doing something with it and have all these services around it. So tell me a little bit about the the, the server infrastructure. Like give, give me a high level and then, you know, we can dive into to some different components and, and the management of it. I guess starting with the ingest point, perhaps. Right. Yeah. And that's exactly what, so we have like basically a pipeline, right? And we call it IMET, which is ingestion model, enhance and transform, right? So the ingestion step basically takes is the gathering point of all that data. So that data can come in streaming from the equipment. It might get uploaded as a single solid file. It might be coming in from competitor equipment. You know, we'll read um, some of our competitors' files as well, and you can get all of that in. And so the ingestion just is just kind of like the raw, we're going to take this and put it into basically a very raw common 
format for the next step, which is model, which is where we take that raw data and we model it into what we want kind of our final state to be, at least as far as kind of a scaffolding goes, right? Um, so this is what the, and not all that data is necessarily going to populate all the pieces of it, but it'll all be in the right shape. Then we go to the enhance section, which is where we might take, do calculations to create numbers that um, don't exist in the raw data. So the raw data will not tell you what, how many miles per hour the equipment was operating at a particular point in time in its kind of in its space-time continuum, right? Um, but it will tell you what its um, what its heading was, and we can deduce between the sample rate of the data we're getting, you know, what its velocity was. So at that point, we can say, right here this piece of equipment was operating at 15 miles per hour. So we'll calculate all kinds of stuff there. And that's kind of the simplest example. And then we finally take it and we go to the final step, which is to take that data and make meaningful pieces of information out of it. So we basically layer all of our data. It exists, the agronomic data at least, in, in a kind of scaffolding of the world. And we follow, you know, we use Google Maps, which is pretty obvious if you look at our stuff, although we can use other GIS stuff. But, you know, the way that Google Maps works, if you ever look at it, is like the entire world is one, right? And then they break the entire world into four squares. And so, and then that's kind of level two. And then if you take one of those squares and break it into four squares, that's level three, right? And you go all the way down and you get to, I don't know, like generally, I think the lowest level that they support with the imaging is like 12. But in cities, you can get down to like 15 or something like that. So we kind of model our, our data in the same way. And then you can, we can have a satellite view and we can take all your agronomic and yield data and we can layer that on top of it. Then we can layer weather data or soil data um, from the USGS or something like that. And you can stack all this data on top of it and then you can make, you know, you can do some, some scientific analysis and you can be able to look at that and say, well, how did, um, I, I bought this kind of seed this year from this company. How well did, did that seed perform versus this other seed that I used the year before when we had about the same weather? Or how does this seed work in this kind of soil versus this other kind of soil? You know, obviously, you know, seed companies are really interested in this same kind of data. A lot of times they'll have relationships with the farmers where they, you know, get to look at that data as well. And usually I hope the, the farmer gets something out of that. The, the key is the farmer always has the the ability to say who gets who gets to see their data and what kind of relationships they have with it. But technically, from the from the server side, if we're talking about like the stacks, that's all done through kind of um, streaming queues. A lot of it's most of it's written in Scala, and the data just kind of flows from one queue to the next um, as it goes through that process. So you're just using like native. Java queues? Like, do you use any uh, distributed queuing infrastructure, like a Kafka or Kinesis or something? You know, it's all it's all Kafka, or, or at least Kafka esque. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> I mean, I get the pun. Well, it's not necessarily I get the pun, always Kafka. But, okay, not yeah. always. Kafka. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's not always Kafka itself, but it's 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 something that um, is almost exactly like Kafka, like a rabbit um, MQ yeah, or something. So, what does that even mean? <laughs> well, you know, like Amazon um, has their own native implementation, basically of Kafka. And you mean so ki- Kinesis? We, I would or, say we Kinesis. Yeah, okay. Kinesis. Got it. We use a lot of Flink too. That's in there. Do you remember the evaluation criteria of Flink versus Apache Beam versus Spark versus Storm versus whatever? I mean, there's a bajillion of these streaming frameworks. Yeah, and we we use a lot of them. You know, we use Spark too in different places. A lot of it is we're very bottom up driven. Company. It sounds like and it. so the different teams have a lot of, yeah, the different teams have a lot of autonomy to be able to figure out what works best for them. And so we, you know, we will look at some of the stuff, particularly if it's open source though, and there's not a big upfront cost to engaging in something. Um, we're more than willing to let somebody let a team experiment and try out. And so we've changed over time the different exact technologies that these different areas are working with we'll use whatever the the team decides works best for them and uh, we encourage a lot of experimentation we do pretty regular hackathons for which are pretty fun but usually that's a that's a time where some of the teams will try out some kind of more far out ideas for changing stuff and we've had a lot of success with that as far as people driving down costs or doing things faster or doing things easier. Now, what you're talking about there with the bottoms up developer freedom, that that's such an interesting question how much freedom developers have because you look at a company like Google and they have this idea of the blessed languages where you know everything at Google basically has to be written in either Java or Python or C++, or maybe maybe Go in some cases. But it's really, given how big Google is, they have a pretty narrow selection of languages. And, you know, obviously that's, that's a constraint in some regards because, like, you know, you have some developers that come in, they want to work with Rust, they want to work with Scala. And the advantage of having bottoms-up freedom is you give developers the freedom to work with whatever language they want to. The downside is when that developer leaves, like I worked at a company one time where they had a bunch of Scala infrastructure and then all the developers who loved Scala had left the company. And so they had like, you know, it's like a really annoying problem where like, how do you support the legacy Scala? So there is this risk to having that bottoms up developer freedom. Yeah. Like we went into Scala very intentionally. Like we thought kind of when we started that project was when Scala was kind of hot everyone was talking oh, about yeah. like Akka oh yeah stuff like six that. years ago something um, like that <laughs> it was about six years about six years ago right that was quite intentional before that we were very much a java environment and then we had some desktop applications they were like written in c-sharp so we had some c-sharp in the office i don't really get i i kind of sit at um i've operated as an architect and I haven't really had a big problem with like weird rogue languages. Nobody's come in and been like, let's rewrite half of this in <laughs> Haskell. Don't jinx it. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> uh, and I love Haskell, but I, I would never you know, do Haskell for someone's 
corporation. I would never do that to them. But <laughs> we essentially have kind of some blessed languages. But I, I don't know that we like have ever written it down necessarily. But it's it's generally JVM stuff. And when I say JVM, I really mean like you know Java and Java and Scala. Although quite frankly, if anybody came in and said we'd like to do this in Kotlin, I'd probably you know give it a thumbs up and be like, all right. And you know C plus plus is on the on the embedded side. That's pretty non-negotiable. The the displays are only going to run. It's you want to get a new runtime on there. It's a bigger deal, right? On the cloud, it's kind of a lot looser. Now, there's the blessed languages question, and then for a company like you, there is a equivalent question in terms of cloud technologies. Like, do can you be like? Is your as a developer? Can I go on DigitalOcean? Can I go on Google Cloud? Can I go on AWS? What do you have constraints over cloud resources? Yeah, there's the, the in that case we have a lot, you know, because as a corporation, you know, we have to have service level agreements with with anybody we go into. So adding in a new cloud provider is a much bigger deal than than picking a language. And we, we would have to go through all of the normal procurement kind of thing. Any, anyone who's worked in a big corporation knows it's it's difficult to get the kind of the spigot open for a, for a vendor. As, and particularly a company like John Deere that has such a history in manufacturing, you know, we're very serious about our um, um, our suppliers and and how that's going to flow. So, yeah, developers can't just like decide they're going to you know, run off and put something on some new cloud stuff, but we generally have agreements with with the major cloud providers and we'll use whichever ones we see fit to use for a particular technology. Sorry, are you mostly AWS or do you use some Google Cloud, some Microsoft? Can't talk about it? Yeah, I don't know that I'm supposed to talk about it. Anyone who does NS lookups can figure out where most of our stuff is hosted. But there's a lot of a lot of visits to Seattle, right? The Seattle area. All right. Well, yeah, that really narrows it down. Given that Google Google Cloud is based in Seattle, so anyway, the question of legacy technology. So John Deere has been around for 183 years, and I don't know how like when you started getting into software, but I'm sure it was long enough ago to have a lot of legacy software infrastructure throughout the company. What's the strategy for maintaining legacy software over time? Do you have a sustainable legacy strategy in place? Yeah, I mean, certainly there's parts of the company. I mean, ISG is relatively young yet, right? We're only like 20 years old. There are definitely, within that time, though, we've produced multiple displays, um, and the earliest versions of them are no longer supported. We won't do any kind of updates for them at all. Uh, it doesn't mean you can't use them, but we really, really only kind of, we only support, I'm not even sure if we're doing patches anymore for the, for the one that was the prominent one when I joined, but we'll support those for a certain amount of time as far as, you know, critical bug fixes, you know, something that's related to safety or something like that. The rest of the company as a corporation, you know, you go back to like the factories and and assembly lines and stuff. And that's where you get into some really old stuff. And I, I, I don't really have a 
great insight in what their strategy is for it. But I know, you know, I see the the churn. The challenge with any kind of thing like that is that, you know, particularly as you get the older stuff, not just having people to maintain it, but, you know, equipment to, to run it. You know, John Deere doesn't, isn't usually, you know, inclined to like, you know, run old, you know, IBM mainframes that IBM's not supporting, right? <clears throat> so I've seen them retire stuff like that and projects of having to just kind of completely rewrite stuff that, you know, was an old COBOL or something like that, and then rewrite that into Java or something like that. And, you know, being able to run it on cloud infrastructure rather than dedicated hardware like a like an IBM mainframe or something like that. But there's definitely, there's always some kind of project going on at Deer and, and I think at any large corporation of, you know, having to recycle and, and recreate some of these older systems. You've done some talks about the problems of modern DevOps workflows. What are the most acute problems that you see with modern tooling and DevOps workflows? So my main criticism of the entire thing is I think it's just entirely too complicated. I did a keynote at DevOps Days Des Moines, which is on YouTube, if anyone wants to see it, but where I kind of lay out, there's, I give like a flow chart of what it means to develop a web application, you know, in, in 2019. And, you know, starting from the top, you know, with, with the icons for all of the different things, you know, like, so you write your requirements in Jira and then you go and you, you know, write them in this language and you check them into GitHub and then GitHub kicks off Jenkins and then Jenkins does this and then that does that and then it goes to Terraform and then Terraform builds out like this entire infrastructure and before you know it there's like literally you know 25 different icons you know up there all representing something different right something that I as the developer have to know about I have to know how these things like hook together I ha I might have to know up to like half a dozen different languages um, you know some of them you know like Terraform is you know kind of a one-shot thing there's nobody else quite uses that that language and then the the result of all of that is some kind of microservice service mesh of systems that all talk to each other and for any developer to have to jam all of that into our heads like all the time and understand where anything might fail it's just too much it's overwhelming like how much we have to the cognitive load, you know, compared to, you know, when I f first started programming as a kid on a Texas Instruments TI-99 4A, you know, you turn it on, you're given a basic prompt, you program something, you run it, you have no external dependencies, and you turn off the computer and then the program's gone. And <laughs> that's kind of the, the simplest oh, back in the day kind of thing. But it's true, you know, we've just kept layering more and more and more and more things onto all of these things. And at some point, I think it, the pendulum has to kind of swing the other way. And I think we've, we've already seen it like with the microservice thing where you don't go to conferences anymore and hear people talk about how 
great microservice architectures and how you should like split everything up. Now you're starting to see talks where people are like, you know what's great? You can make a microservice run a lot faster by putting all of its processes in a single <laughs> JVM. <laughs> well, and then GitLab, GitLab is the epitome of this, right? The GitLab model of consolidated DevOps, that's kind of, that's the, we've now we've, perhaps we're really nearing the, uh, the tip of the the pendulum swing to the monolith side, right? And and GitHub too. I mean, if you look at what they're doing, they're basically eating up everything around them. You know, with all of their um, with their security systems and security alerts, and now they have actions. So where before, if you were using GitHub, you would also have to have you know, your Jenkins and your build servers and some, and like Black Duck or something for security or audit or something like that. And now like they're basically building it all into GitHub. And I'm sure GitLab's, I'm not as familiar with their offering right now, but, you know, doing the same thing. And also with, you know, Amazon and Microsoft and managed services is also helping to reduce that. You know, if I can just declare a Dynamo table and I don't have to manage a database server, you know, that's a big win for me as a developer. The whole serverless infrastructure, I think, is kind of the way things are going to go more and more and more. And it's kind of interesting because in, in my talk, I talk about kind of the history of DevOps and how we, all the way from the beginning, it's almost like we're coming back to mainframes, you know, except that now like Amazon and Microsoft and Google are our mainframes, right? They still have limited resources. It's just I'm not aware of them. It's, right. It's Amazon's problem to figure out how many, how many concurrent lambdas can I run or, or whatever. No, your limited resource is now is your limited resource is now pure money. It's basically like they've taken care of the scalability of the compute infrastructure. Now it's just like, okay, all right, we, we you know, I've got I've got 80 bucks lying around, time to buy like uh, some more lambda functions, time to buy like some more redshift processing or something. Like the only limiting reagent is how much capital you have. Right. Right. Well, there, there are but, it's, hard but it limits. still feels like a single. It's, it feels like a big. It feels like a big single mainframe computer, though. You're like my processing is broken up into these lambda functions. My, you know, databases are all distributed across different machines, but it can feel like one consolidated supercomputer. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And they they do have physical limits. We have. I, I've actually run into them, which is pretty fun. Apparently, you can't have infinite lambdas. <laughs> Yeah, there is definitely a maximum number of lambdas. <laughs> what were you trying to spin up infinite lambdas for? We've kind of gone back and forth with serverless versus, you know, dedicated servers. And then also just like size of accounts and stuff like that. So you'd be surprised at how quickly you can run into like account limits. Now, usually you can go and ask Amazon or Microsoft or whoever, um, hey, can you increase the account limit for, you know, the number of... That, you know, they, they definitely have limits to the number of lambdas you can run, the number of RDS instances you can have in a particular account and, and that kind of stuff. So um, most people don't hit them, you know, particularly if you're in a startup or experimental phase. But if you're really running a lot of infrastructure, a lot of compute infrastructure, you can run into them pretty quickly. All right. Well, as we begin to wrap up, maybe you could just tell me a little bit. I mean, I'm sure we could have gone a lot deeper into the DevOps crisis. But as far as I can tell, like there's not really a... I mean, you've identified a problem that I agree with you on. I don't think there's like a... a one quick fix to uh, solving this DevOps crisis of too much infrastructure and too much complication. But zooming back out to the high level, what do you foresee in the future of farming infrastructure? Like, tell me about 
what we're going to see in the next 10 years. This isn't me speaking as like a, a representative of John Deere, but just as someone who's kind of in the agriculture equipment world and I'm looking out and I you know go to farm shows and over the next 10 to 20 years the way I I see things personally going is it's going to get more autonomous and it's going to get smaller and you know we've gotten got to the point where this the equipment is huge and the real challenge is that we need to you know we're going to have even more people on this planet and we need we need to be able to feed them and that's not necessarily going to mean that we need to just like jack up the output of Iowa and Illinois as far as corn and soybeans go you know we need that too but we really need the rest of the world to be able to to meet that output countries need to be able to feed their their own people they can't all be dependent upon Iowa to just output massive amounts of corn, right? And some of that, that big equipment doesn't necessarily make sense in those smaller countries, you know, with a whole variety of different topography and everything. And also from our standpoint, you know, the, having a giant single piece of equipment is, for a farmer, you know, that's a single point of failure. And just like we want to break up our monoliths, it might make sense for that equipment to get smaller. And if it's autonomous and if it's robots, you know, they could get quite small. I know personally of at least three or four different companies within Iowa, little startups included, running out of people's barns, where people are trying to make like dog or horse size robots for farm equipment, you know, to go out and do planting or harvesting or, or spraying, you know, and we're working on, on similar things. We, we have a company out of called Blue, Blue River out of Sunnyvale where we're doing machine learning spraying. So, you know, we're having it be able to go through the field and look, you know, right now it's pulled behind a tractor, but it can look at that look at the plants and say, hey, that's a, that's a weed, spray that. That's a corn plant, don't spray that. And it's, it's going to get more, you know, we're hoping we can reduce eventually herbicide use by like 90%. And it's just going to get more intelligent and more autonomous. And that's going to mean smaller pieces of equipment that are kind of running on their own. So I, I think that's, it's a really cool future. I just like look out and would love to see just a bunch of dog-sized robots going around picking weeds. It's very, very science fiction to me. Essentially doing what people used to do. But which totally is just, plausible. Right. You know, we used to just have kids, you know, walking through the fields picking weeds. That's how you did weeding. You send the kids out to walk the beans. Why can't a, a robot do that? All right. Ryan Bergman, thanks for coming on the show. It's been great talking. Sure. Thanks. Thanks.